0: Investors Chronicle.
1: Welcome to the Companies and Markets show. It's Thursday the 30th of November as we record. After a week in which the investment industry was lessened by the death of Berkshire Hathaway Vice Chair Charlie Munger, One of his many famous phrases to live by was avoiding stupidity is easier than seeking brilliance, so we will attempt to conform to that at least on today's show. On which note, on the show today we are going to be looking at interim results from a high flyer, Pensions Consultancy XPS, and prior to that the full year figures from a former high flyer, Music Equipment Manufacturer Focusrite, both of which were released in recent days. We're also going to be discussing our cover feature this week, which appropriately enough given the plummeting temperatures all around us, is on energy security. Joining me to discuss all of this are over the line Julian Hoffman, hello Dan, and Alex Newman. Hi Dan, and in the studio James Norrington. Hi Dan. Hi everyone. We're going to start then with the AIM listed Focus Right. Uh, it makes and distributes music recording equipment. I dare say some of the material in this studio has probably come from them at some point. And the same goes for live music equipment as well. It's been on quite a roller coaster ride, share price wise, over the past couple of years. Alex, what did you make of the figures themselves, first of all?
2: Well, it was in some ways uh, uh, optically a repeat of last year. So, I mean, the, the real headline here is the top line, so revenue for the year, the end of August dipped 3%, but organic sales were down in the the previous financial year as well. So momentum has has basically evaporated from this business uh, at a group level. Um, And in the content creation division, which has you know, historically been the big driver of the business and, and kind of what it's known for. Um, so this is sort of your home studio uh, hardware and, and software. If you're into making music at home or or streaming or, or what, whatever, and makes about three quarters of sales has kind of gone into reverse. So, you know, a bit more context for, for you know, perhaps uh, listeners who aren't too familiar with Focusrite. I mean, it was, uh, it, it was a, a great growth stock prior to the pandemic because it had it, it had a very sort of very strong defined product space. It was um, tapping into a big growth trend. But really, when the pandemic hit, like lots of other sectors, it 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 went into kind of a hypersonic uh, growth mode. So, I mean, in, in the two years to August 2021, sales doubled and operating profit tripled. So as you say, yeah, it's been an absolute roller coaster for investors and, and kind of a bitter pill to swallow to see two years of essentially kind of stagnation at the income statement level. The other bitter pill to swallow really is that as well as sales falling, we first had cost of sales and now administrative expenses ticking up. So that has hit profits and eroded margins. But yeah, we can, we can come on, on to maybe some of the brighter spots <laughs> maybe as
0: well. The thing that I find very strange about the company is why anyone thought you know it's an area that seems that attracts any kind of value because you know surely digital recording equipment is a very commoditized space anyways i mean uh, you know my mother and you bought Sony uh hi-fis because that was what she that was what was good in the 1970s but uh i mean it, it, yes you, you see my point i mean it didn't doesn't appear to have any pricing powers does it i mean that's as Martha pointed out
1: alex your thoughts on pricing power before i jump into some other uh, points i mean yeah maybe.
0: I would disagree. I would
2: actually disagree. I mean, mm. I think you can say there is uh, there are elements of any hardware um, particular, you know, if it's if it's low ticket item hardware that it can end up commoditized. The niche that Focusrite is in and the quality product line it has, I think for people who see themselves as sort of serious uh, home musicians or are, you know, really into their gear, I, I think they have that they, they there is a little bit more flexibility on on pricing and really that they, you know i'm, I'm a i've, I've bought focus products in the past myself they make they do make some very high quality products and um in, in part that means they've been a bit of a victim of their own success because the replacement levels aren't quite as frequent as some other uh, retailers but that does give them a degree of pricing power and also brand quality and also loyalty because people uh you know in this in this market like to like to work with, with good quality hardware and maybe less
1: uh, prone to, to compromising there. So, yeah, I, I think I'd probably disagree on that point. I suppose as well, you can say, you know, given the manufacturing the equipment accounts for most of the cost of sales, but at the same time, they do seem to have still a decent return on capital employed, which also sort of suggests that, you know, what you've just been saying, that people do want to to pay up for some of these things.
2: For sure, for sure. what Julian's saying there, I mean, you, you can find cheaper Chinese made versions for anything and and if price point is the ultimate decider then yes there is that you know they, they do come up against some challenges there but um but in the main i think they've got a defendable product
1: the the other side of the business the one that did particularly well in these results albeit it's a much smaller part of the business or, or quite a bit smaller it is the the live music side of things and that really benefited from you know, it seems strange to say this now, the return of live music. So it feels like that's been going on for a while. But, you know, these are full year results and, and you can see the real uplift there. Is that, is that a um, potential, you know, growth driver in future, the continued expansion of, you know, all these live events and festivals? You know, there seems to be a thousand and one festivals everywhere nowadays. Uh, or, or is that just creating tough comparatives in, in that part of the business now for next year?
2: Yeah, I, it's. I would say yes to growth, but yeah, the, the caveat you point out there will be very much on the minds of investors. So the question has to really be if the the, the live music division, where they've they've seen very strong growth in the last uh, couple of years, uh, and and this is where Focusrite supplies things like preamps, consoles, uh, and the like. The the question has to be if if that's just going to result in a sort of repeat of what we've seen in the home studio division, whereby big orders. You know kind of end up petering out because th- there's not quite the backlog to fulfill or demand to fulfill next year or in two years time but i i do think there is growth here in part because i think they've given themselves lots of markets to go after i, I mean just to take one example it's small but if you go on the website you can see that they you know one of their customer bases here is revival churches this sounds quite a different market to you know sort of uh, g- garage bands Um, is that the
0: is that the trendy vicar end of
2: it yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah, i mean there's trendy and then there's all you know there's also sort of you know blockbuster stadium um churches okay but but here you know the professional level audio systems are a big part of uh i suppose congregations expectations of of you know of, of religious services so there are actually lots of end markets here it's not just a case of live music or home studio they are they they know where they're their potential growth markets are and i think there is possibly more opportunity
1: in this live
2: market than the shares currently are implying there is value
1: in today uh i mean they do derive a decent chunk of revenue from the us as well where just to stick on the the church's point those kind of you know big mega churches and, and things are a big business so i don't know if that's if those two things overlap much yeah so that's you know another potential i suppose We've spoken about the various end markets, and they have made quite a few acquisitions in the past few years. Seems to be a few over the past twelve months as well. I think it did take them a few years when they listed about a decade ago. You know, they weren't really very acquisitive at the beginning. Should should we kind of see them as a buy and build kind of strategy, as we've spoken about a few times on the podcast over recent months? Is that the kind of business they are now, or is that just a natural part of any business getting getting bigger and looking to expand?
2: Yeah, they are in part that, and, and I think. To their credit, they have done this quite well. So acquiring smaller businesses, I mean, the, the first point to say is their in-house product development pipeline is strong. They I think they released, you know, 30-odd products in the last financial year. So they are able to update their suite of products and for some of their customers, buying the latest version is an important thing to have. At the same time, they are always looking to, to sort of diversify in a sense within the broader music software and hardware sector and um, so things like software development kind of makes sense from an MA perspective because there is a trade-off here a software developer will bring its own set of skills that they might not have in-house but Focusrite is a well-established name in the recording and live music world and it has you know fantastic distribution channels so a, a company like they bought a, a, a software developer called Sonox um, in the last financial year it wouldn't, it makes sense for them to, to join a division like focus, right, rather than go it alone, because if you're a soft, a small software development team, what you want to focus on is doing software development, not all the, you know, the company building necessarily that, that comes with getting bigger. And that, for example, looks to have been really successful. So this division Sonox, which sells kind of software plugins for home studio recording made a, a profit contribution of nearly a million pounds in the year. And it was bought for 7.2 million pounds. So. You know they're, they're, this buy and build strategy can work if done at sensible prices and they seem to have a, a handle on what sensible price and and the growth that can come with it in their distribution network can be
1: and what about the uh, the valuation itself then because you know the the shares are back you know where they were you know not even kind of pre pandemic levels a little bit below that now in some ways having fallen so far from the from the peak you know in the middle of the pandemic there was a undersupply of you know various things for as we know all about supply chains during that time and certainly for products that are in demand that then shifted to you know overstocking as demand withered away and they'd built up too much that seems to have been worked through now, but yeah, how does all this play into whether the business looks like good value now or otherwise?
2: yeah, maybe three things to say here the the first is um I mean, obviously looking at the stock price chart, it's, it's it's not a pretty sight. We're 74% off the peak and back to a level that the shares first reached in 2018. So clearly right? is not the growth stock it was back then. So we shouldn't be expecting it to trade on the same sort of earnings multiple as either the pre-pandemic days or during the pandemic. And, and you know, investors always need to remember that that is one of the two really big ingredients for share prices you know here's the big but it is generating about twice the level of operating profit as it was back then in 2018 the brand has had five more years and a pandemic in which to build goodwill and broaden its customer base and so in some aspects it is a stronger business even though the margins and sales are obviously under pressure so on balance 12 times forward earnings looks quite cheap i think given the asset base management you know brand name reputation of quality products. They don't have really much debt on the balance sheet. The flip side to that as well uh, is is that forecasts are going nowhere. (laughs) And so it's hard to see from a sales perspective where growth is gonna come from, but they are a very cash generative business and that gives them options. So, you know, one one option perhaps would be to look at the dividend. They raised it 10% this year. And it's, it's still to a fairly negligible level, but um, the dividend is covered nearly five times by earnings. So, one way perhaps to to you know sort of juice returns is to is to maybe revise the dividend policy. They would probably say they have got lots of other att- attractive investment opportunities to look at as well. But you know they they need they need a catalyst clearly. But there is definitely a quality business buried under this you know slightly sorry stock price chart um, here. Um, I think for long term holders who've stayed with the business, they would, you know, uh, I think there are a few, there there are not many reasons to doubt that they could be another, they could have another good 10 years ahead of them, uh, once they've, you know, they sort of um, emerged from uh, these tricky comparators, and there's a bit more of a growth story to hang the the hat on.
1: Yeah, there's there's certainly, you know, there there is those aspects of a quality business there. You know, the management seemed fairly well aligned and well respected as well. Phil Duddridge, the the founder and, and chair, I think, you know, was a, a roadie with Led Zeppelin in the 70s to begin with. So very much uh, uh, something that someone who's built a passion project into a successful business there. There's a few stories uh, yeah. behind that stuff. Yeah, I'm sure, uh, you know, he could have some colourful uh, colourful tales uh, far away involving from
0: Involving uh, an octopus, if I seem to remember.
1: Involving an octopus? Yes, Wow. But
0: anyway, isn't that, that's a story for another time.
1: Well, yeah, that's an entirely separate podcast. Well, yeah, focus, right? You know, the momentum isn't there at the moment, clearly. But we're going to turn now to a business which does have both good operating momentum and good share price momentum. And that is XPS Pensions. Julian, you covered these figures for us. You've written about them, in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, separately in magazine and online as well. First of all, you know, how do the results look and say a little bit more about what the business does, because, you know, it's a pensions consultancy and that that Covers all manner of things nowadays. You know, advising pension funds and pension schemes.
0: So yeah, the company is essentially an advisor, a fee charging advisor to pension funds, who need all sorts of advice with how to manage the funds, how to comply with regulations, how to administer the funds. So they they essentially have two divisions. One which is a sort of administrator that sends out uh, you know the annual prospectus every year or keeps people's details up to date. And the other side of it is an actuarial advice business, which is the more high-value uh, part of XPS, which advises pension funds on tricky things like transferring liabilities over to the um, insurance industry, uh, and you know other things to do with complying with legislation and things like that. So it's a it's a very specialised business, and uh, the results showed that uh, it's one that's growing exponential rates. So um, the revenue growth was 19%. And in the last set of results, and uh, they're working off margins, which are close to 50%, which is, you know, extraordinary, really, for a business, which doesn't sound um, particularly interesting from from the outside. But uh, the main feature that they have, which I think is quite important, and, and a key differentiator with sort of more commoditized management consulting type businesses is that not everyone can do it. So essentially, they have to uh, employ quite highly skilled actuaries in order to to give formal advice. The risks are very high if uh, if they get it wrong, So you know, they have to carry everything high, you know, liability insurance is obviously quite high for them. But it, it is a business that's growing very quickly. And, you know, there is a, a fundamental reason for that is the uh, the maturity of a lot of defined benefit pension schemes uh, last autumn the conservative government managed to solve the uh, pension deficit problem in corporate uh, in corporate britain almost overnight and uh, the resulting high interest rates means that many db schemes are in profit or in surplus now and that has encouraged them to offload the liabilities onto insurance companies life insurers at a a very good rate, at very good rates, and uh, XPS advises on this process and helps to do all the paperwork, which is extensive. And uh, it means that um, there are fundamental drivers behind the business uh, and they're meeting a lot of increased demand for that. It, it's it's not one that was would ever be on anyone's radar, I don't think. But um, it, it has had a lot of the share has had a lot of momentum over the last six to eight months and uh, you know it's up almost i think 60 percent on the year so you know you could say it's one of the best performing shares on the market at the moment so it is a strange you know quirky business that makes a virtue out of in a sense doing something that other people would find either complex or boring yeah in, in any other context
1: yeah. which can often be you know as is the case here a route to success the the two sides of the business i mean there are various different things it, it does and as you, you boil it down to, you know, really the actuarial side versus the administration side, that the former is much higher margin and has been growing uh, certainly in the past six months at a, a faster rate, which is obviously good for the for the company's profitability. Can, can we expect that to continue or, or, you know, how does the the balance between the two of them play out perhaps as well?
0: Well, the the, the advantage they have is that uh, the, they've got a pricing power advantage because there are not many... Companies outside perhaps the very big four consultancies um, that offer this kind of advice, uh, and so their contracts are quite uh, solid with you know with you know inflation inflation linked uplifts and things like that. So they 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 don't lose they've not lost anything out of there being a rising costs. So the admin business is important uh, for the the pensions business because it often leads to clients coming back to XPS and saying can we have the advice to move our our funds and they have a lot of blue chip clients in it so they you know they have got john lewis pension fund in there bt is in in the admin side for them it's although it's not as profitable um it is actually quite um a good show showcase for them you know kind of window you know dress window for the rest of the business they often get clients who come in on an admin side and they can pass them through to higher value to advice so it's quite a good split from that or, or you know they work together quite well uh, but um you know your point about growth is interesting it, it, you know, the business will keep growing as long as the market in pensions transfers continues continues to grow and um the thinking on that is that there's at least two more years of solid growth in it before you reach a limit where schemes can no longer be easily transferred um, or yeah. you know insurers don't have the capital to take on the liability so it's um i think from the current share price levels they're hovering around 24 i think 24 times earnings it's not um it's not a cheap business by any means but um when you when you break down the components the the, the quality of the earnings growth is really quite apparent when it um when you look at the fact that it's not affected so by inflation it's only real uh, constraint is the capacity to take on new work um, it generates a lot of operational
1: gearing and, and you can almost say it's worth the premium that they generate i suppose just to go back to charlie munger mentioned at the top that was one of the lessons he, he kind of gave to, to berkshire wasn't it? it was really you know move them away from a simply buying cheap companies to buying good companies, even if they were trading at a premium kind of price level. I'm not saying you'd buy XPS pensions, but but you know some of those high valuations are worth bearing in mind in that context, I think. Well,
0: it's quite true, yes. I mean, and if you compare them to like a standard um, consulting company, they've all had to do discounts this year just to get business in through the door. And yeah, you know, you, you, it, it shows you that it's not a commoditized, you know,
1: service that has no value. Mm. And I think even, you know, certainly the the bulk annuities, the the risk transfer side that you've talked about is going to keep going for a while, but there are other parts of the the gravy train, if you want to call it that as well, aren't there? Even if they're administrative-based, you know, there's things like uh, the DB funding code coming in next year, which I think they and other pension specialists anticipate getting a lot of business from and, and, you know, various court rulings as well, if you can get down into the weeds, really, with uh, uh, some of those. But those kind of things really create a continued pipeline of business because schemes want to know what the latest situation is and a lot of the times that situation is changing.
0: Well I mean it changes all the time. I mean legislation is a movable feast and nobody knows what it will look like in five years' time or what the the impact will be. And I mean that just creates a demand for a for accurate advice. So um yeah I definitely think that um beyond the E B transfer market there are there are other drivers in it and um Uh, I mean, if they can continue uh, that, you know, if they can continue hiring enough people in order to take on the the billable,
1: in order to be able to charge billable hours,
0: then I don't think they'll have any trouble generating growth.
1: Yeah. The final point on that, I just wanted to touch on hiring and staff, because we have seen with some of the other consultancies, you know, this situation where You hire a lot of people and then you end up, well, A, having hired too many, which might not be the case here given the growth drivers we've spoken about. But also, you know, those staff uh, costs do go up and with a successful business, you know, wage demands, certainly in the current climate as well, are going to increase. You know, is that something to keep an eye on or is that something they're managing well enough, it seems?
0: Well, I think it seems to be they don't seem to have a huge amount of cost inflation in the business. But the beauty of their contracts is that whatever does come through as higher cost, they can charge and pass on to the customers. So um, I don't think that that will be a, a particular threat to their profitability. Uh, obviously, trying to find enough skilled people is is mm. a potential problem in the long run. Um, uh, there, we might start seeing them becoming more acquisitive. I mean, they have bought businesses in the, over the last few years. At least they made five, at least five different transactions, uh, and around forty million of um, of capital has gone into into buying in talent. Mm-hmm. Effectively, it's not a case. I don't think that they'll they'll struggle. You know, even if you can't hire a fully fledged actuary, what they tend to do is, is get in the graduates. Uh, you know, at a graduate level. Um, and then that allows people further up the chain to you know pass on work to them and then they can take on more higher billing work. You know, there is a benign cycle where you can you can create capacity without necessarily creating expense indeed but yeah so uh, you know it's an interesting business I mean they're going to deleverage as well they've sold uh, NPT recently uh, one of their segments but um, they'll use that to deleverage. The money from that was about thirty-five million in cash up front. I think that puts them in a very strong position, as far as I can tell. I mean, it's a you know, it's a very solid business. Indeed,
1: we are now going to turn to our final segment of the show. That is our cover story this week, which is on energy security. James, the author, is here with us now. When you say energy security in the past couple of years, I think people are probably quite conscious of some of the things that. Involved and certainly some of the context too, but but can you talk us through to begin with just your your thinking behind the piece? What what um, drove you to write it?
3: Oh, I had to. I think that's for the reason. well. No, 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 well no, so.
1: You suggested that I commissioned you at that <laughs> yes. point. You had to write it, but yeah, before that. Um,
3: no, really. What sort of um, drove me to write the, the piece was you talk about some very emotive issues. You've got you know the energy transition and, and climate change, which which is pretty terrifying, uh, admittedly, and uh, and you also have issues of um, geopolitics and energy security. and You can find all manner of commentary on, on these things I can't claim to be an expert on geopolitics or, or on climate science but it's interesting to really to think about it in, in the thought process of an investor which really comes down to um, you know risks rewards probabilities of probabilities of risk probabilities of failure I've tried to outline some of the cases that people probably read before, but in a way that um, is maybe a little less um, emotive and maybe a bit more cynical.
1: And there's certainly some uh, new thinking in there as well. I think, you know, don't want to do yourself down, uh, which we will come to as well on the the company side of things later on. But to start with, why don't we talk about, you know, last year, obviously with uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the spike in energy prices we saw after that that really kind of put for many european countries you know the the uh, need for pragmatism when it comes to energy production and energy security back on the agenda what what are kind of the lessons we can learn from that period is it that pragmatism will be required at times or throughout or what, what did you take from that
3: oh, i think one of one of the things is um, is actually when you have a serious event and and you're planning maybe hasn't been circumspect that actually it can be damaging to our goals of uh, of dealing with climate change as well for example you know Germany's move away from nuclear is left in a situation where um, the decision to, to burn more coal because it, it became ridiculously dependent on on Russian gas that's not not a good place to be in. in the UK we greatly reduced our gas storage capacity which means that even a country with vast renewable potential like, like the UK um, just to do with the way the wholesale price market operates, um, people who, you know, people like me who are on a green energy um uh, ended up paying more for our electricity because of the, the dynamics of the wholesale market, as well as obviously you need a baseline for when the wind doesn't blow. So it's just this level of planning wasn't there. And it has an impact on has an impact on companies, had an impact on consumers. Um, You know, it, it, obviously, the spike in inflation had a huge impact on the government. It's a very large part of um, the reason that we had. Problems with government bond yields, and um, you know, obviously compounded by the so-called mini budget last year. But but it's uh, it has a, it has knock-on effect, and really, I think that's that's kind of the point of the whole piece is is a bit more second-order thinking, which is the way investors do think.
1: Let's talk about the U.S. and, and China in this regard. You know, the the two superpowers, if you want to use a slightly a dated phrase now, but but you know, their their impact on the concept of mm-hmm. energy security and you know, some of the companies we can get to again in a minute. Why don't we start with the US and some of the decisions they've made and then we can maybe come on to China and it's, you know, the things we hear a lot about nowadays, about its control of various rare earths and the production of, you know, various things which go into producing renewables and renewable energy that we all use. It's got a lot of those markets sewn up already.
3: Well, they're they're superpowers and they're super polluters, so they're they're, they're both the top two polluters in the world. Um, And China's something like 29% of... Of global carbon dioxide emissions from fossil fuels, which which is enormous, and really, while the U.S. You know, has gained plaudits for for the Inflation Reduction Act, which has some some very good objectives, America did have a very energy dominant position. I mean, it, it is a net exporter now of energy, but its supply chains of, of energy have possibly been disrupted by maybe trying to move too quickly in a, in a way. That's not to do down the importance of investment, but but actually, um, you know. You need to be um, quite so hostile towards their domestic oil and gas industry at the same time as they were doing that, because U.S. gas is actually one of the reasons why America's um, fossil fuels, well, uh, net emissions have actually fallen, even though they haven't been doing that much to lessen their consumption. It's a good transitional fuel, particularly if you're sitting on that resource as they are. And and again, with when there comes disconnects in supply chains, you know they have they've had to go and, and import and go begging the Saudis and the Venezuelans for oil. Um, and so even from a, a climate perspective you know you've got there's very different um, levels of cleanliness with fuel that goes into refinery process as well so um, in, in a way you know it's kind of again it just coming back to this point of, of, of second order thinking what's the impact you know it's your it's your security does it detract from from climate? goals in the short term, if, if you're sort of getting energy from sources which um, are extracted in a less green way, are refinable in a less green way, um, and ultimately encourage and embolden regimes which which care about these things far less than you do.
1: And, and on the, the China side of things, you know, I mean, obviously, that's the way the world has worked for many decades, you know, China produces a lot of, uh, of what the rest of us consume. But that side of things, when you think about energy security is something that politicians are more conscious of now in part because of the you know worsening relations with China until perhaps you know last couple of months but but also because you know China is really making a name for itself in these new energy areas as well
3: china is a is is a real sort of dichotomy on the one hand um you know the, it, it's an, obviously a global industrial powerhouse still very much powered by coal it, it keeps emitting fossil fuels because um, it's it keeps needing more energy but it is putting more and more of that energy is coming on to its credit through nuclear renewables uh, a global leader really in, in electrolysis for hydrogen production for example but it again you know china has from the security perspective, there's a there's a bit of a risk to the West the fact that China has really you know, stolen a march on on um, on sort of the supply chains and the processing of rare earths that are necessary for a lot of the, um, uh, the 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 energy transition, but also the fact that we're depending very much on China to manufacture some of the harder sort of um, infrastructure for our um, our own energy transition which in the short term is increasing demand for those coal burning factories so again it is it is is sort of it does beg the question you know would would we be better off with a slightly i mean it's a question it's not i'm not offering a definitive answer to annoy environmentalists here but but it's just it's worth having those those that thought process of, of you know what are the risks here in the in the short term you know, is, is it helping you achieve those those objectives and are you compromising some security creating dependence um, and moving away from fossil
1: fuels too quickly in the meanwhile mm. another interesting aspect of the piece is the the use of the uh the black litterman model to look at companies and their valuations and and what the market is saying about them versus what you know traditional pricing models might be saying can you say a little bit more Or can you encapsulate this very complicated uh, modelling perhaps Well,
3: Black Litterman really is, is it's not to do directly with client, but it Mm. is about opinion. I mean, when I was looking at, well, how should an investor react to this? I mean, the the typical conclusion you might think to a feature like this is here's a list of companies that that will benefit from this, this and this. Well, actually, the market and most investors will probably be able to work out for themselves. You know, if, if you think oil prices are going to be elevated, then don't sell shell straight away. If you think um, defence security is an issue, then you, you go in, into as security firms, you think that, you know, we want copper going to be important by antifagasta. So people people already think that, but everyone else in the market will think that. But really, it's an idea of of, um, of weighing up how opinions in the market are expressed, you know, relative to traditional um, capital asset pricing model risk. Black Litterman really is a way of assessing your own opinions and measuring it against the risk reward in the market so it's it's kind of a way of self monitoring rather than anything that's particularly
1: to do with um energy itself mm. but nonetheless an interesting aspect of the uh, of the piece i think uh, looking at that and it might be something we explore in in more detail in future as well that does bring us to the end of today's show though as i say that is our cover feature this week in print and online so do check that out Thank you to James for discussing that. Thank you to Alex and to Julian as well. And thank you to Maddy Apthorpe, our producer. We will be back next time with another Companies and Market show.